0: Good evening. So tonight I am going to do part three of this Kali Yuga Talks. The Kali Yuga, like um, various ancient cosmologies, is something like a 20,000 or 50,000-year cycle. And And this idea comes from the Vedas that at the beginning of a universe arising, there is an intimacy with truth. And that gradually, as things develop, the individual, because the culture, cultures get further and further away from truth, become more and more distant. And Kali Yuga is the apex of that, that we're at the apex of alienation. One of the ideas around that is that we have uh, these ideas that there's human beings and then there's spirituality, that spirituality is something a human being might do or might not do seems like the truth in our lives. We might do it or we might not do it. But that itself is a product of Kali Yuga because there was no such gap. To be human was to be spiritual. There was no such thing as spiritual because that's what you were. But as we get further and further away from that source intimacy, spiritual practice comes into being, And in both the Buddhist version of this and the Vedic version, that itself has become somewhat degraded. And I'm just exploring this idea as a lens. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I hardly leave my little neighborhood. These days I practice, I work from home, I go to Jeff Bezos's palace, walk to the river, go to the park, this is a good universe. I don't know if there's a Kali Yuga, but sometimes I think there really is. And um, that's why I'm talking about this. I asked for some, any feedback or suggestions of aspects of this to explore. And Olivia wrote me and said, I believe you said you wanted to hear more about mechanization, how we're becoming computer-like, which in the book, Yuga, There is a lot devoted to that. One of the the synonyms for Kali Yuga that he uses is, this is the age of quantification, accelerated by the computer. My ideas aren't super well organized tonight, so we'll see how it comes out. So one of the things I said last week was, or the week before, that one becomes like that that which they're in relationship with. I use the example of when you hang out with somebody, you pick up speech, speech uh, mannerisms or kind of hand mannerisms, and I've become cat-like because I hang out with my cats a lot. And I've definitely become more like my girlfriend and she's become more like me. And when I lived at the monastery, I became more like Hogan. And sometimes I'd become like people. I was like, wow, I'm becoming like them. And that was a problem. So we interact so much with machines and with computers that we are becoming like them. And we don't even have a choice around that or we could start to bring more choice around, do we want to become like these um, machines? Some of what follows are are examples of that. And, uh, and these are relevant to spiritual practice and what that is. So I was just gazing out on the, the meadow in front of my house with this question of, how are we becoming computer-like or machine-like? And I was thinking of a computer, and what an odd thing it is if you placed a computer. And I had this image of like an 80s computer. If you place an 80s computer out on a meadow, what a profane juxtaposition that is. Actually, somebody had the chutzpah to put like an old monitor out in the Jizo garden at the monastery. And I always hated that. You're walking in this beautiful forest, and there's this TV. And I think, I know this person, he's a kind of um, wily kind of dude. I think he did it for the juxtaposition. But it's really like a jarring juxtaposition. And so I was thinking that a computer is very much a closed environment. It can only really interact with its own programs. And that's nothing like natural beings. Natural beings are completely interpermeated by their environments. As human beings, we have an open relationship. That's part of the problem we're talking about. Even if we don't want to become mechanized because our culture is, you can hardly escape it. Who goes hiking without a phone in case they get lost? For example, computer comes with you even in the so called nature experience. So, just that image of the box that is completely self referential and cut apart from its environment. We too are very easily programmed like a computer. A computer will not object to anything you upload to it. There is no discrimination about what information it receives. As long as you can speak its language, it'll take the information and start operating as if it was true. It's the new parameters. A computer, a machine, takes in ideas without reflection or examination. Right now in America there's these two camps, right? There's the liberal thinkers and there's the conservative thinkers. And if you dare to challenge ideas on either side, look out. Ideas are not to be examined, they're identity markers. That's computer-like, just to take in information without question, without actually thinking for yourself. In the Tibetan tradition, it said there's three aspects of relating to the Dharma. You have to study it. You have to listen to it. And you have to reflect on it. So the first two are basically, you you put yourself in the situation where the teaching is coming your way. Whether that's through the tantras or the sutras or a teacher. But then it's upon you to reflect on it. And if you don't reflect and you don't contemplate on it, the process is incomplete. It's not a presentation of principles that you're supposed to just swallow without really deeply engaging with them. To study, to listen, to reflect But the machine age presents us the soundbite, the post, whatever form it comes in, the media capsule in such a way that we don't, we're not, it doesn't demand that we reflect on what's being presented to us. You could choose not to engage with that, but how does that affect our relationship with, with the Buddha Dharma is part of the question. A computer or a machine can't take in the information without categorizing it. It can't take in the unexpected. It can only receive things on the format that it can receive them. And categorization, my teacher talks about something called the tyranny of the rational mind. If we can't immediately make sense of it with our current conceptual paradigms, we tend to reject it. Yeah. One of the purifying and empowering elements of something like koan study is it will not give you rational toeholds all the time. It challenges you to open up another faculty. It challenges you to to engage with something that is not easily categorizable, that you can't, you don't expect. So there's something here uh, that I'm orbiting around, around passivity with um, ideas and passivity with practice. James Hillman, uh, an American psychologist that I love, very deep, very deep thinker, he said that without conscious reflection, then people have a life of events, but not experiences. That things just happen to you, but without deep, deep thinking and without the slowness A life that leaves room for reflection. You don't have experiences. You just have events that just move through you and don't actually impact or change one. And then it leaves you hungry to be changed. You wanted the vacation or the whatever to change you, to really impact you. But all it was was a series of events because, well, reflection doesn't make any money. Right, It doesn't fit in the quantified time-is-money scheme. And so we tend not to do it. Or the I'm recovering from my time-is-money scheme self-care thing. Doesn't fit in that. I'm doing some intense physical exercise. And I bought this this thing of electrolytes. And it's so much like a machine, the language that they use around these electrolytes. First of all, it's called like fuel. The company is a lab. It's optimized for my performance, right? It's all like as if I am a, am a robot. I'm a robot and I'm going to put in these awesome chemicals to be one of the best robots. A robot that can really compete with other robots. Do you know what neurohackers are? Does Does anybody here follow that kind of stuff? There's this, yeah. People who are trying to optimize the performance of their brain. Taking cool supplements. I like cool supplements, but... Part of the mechanization is relating to the body as a machine. The body is a a machine that we can tune up, we can optimize, we can upgrade. I'm entertaining the notion of rejecting the idea of this human being as a system altogether. Because system is machine thinking. Who said it was a system? There are relationships... But what do we mean when we talk about a system? This laptop is a system. Now, the body-mind relationship in Buddha-Dharma, if you... study and practice carefully, you would see that to clarify what the, that relationship is, is the same as awakening. It's not what the, the, what's taught about the reality of the body-mind. We could understand it conceptually, but the experience would be a profound shift. And what's presented as the experience of the reality of the body-mind is that, well, the body is mostly mind. The body is is, uh, slow mind. It's densified mind. As the Buddha is known for saying, all is arisen from mind, all follows mind, all is shaped by mind. Now, this is not denying physicality, but it's saying the nature of physicality is awareness. This is really different than thinking that your body is a house for your mind. If the body is a house for your mind, which part of the house does it live in? What would that mean? If it went into your toes, that would mean that your heart would stop, wouldn't it? There's all these kinds of um, very interesting logical arguments. For example, if you're interested, you could find things like this in the Shurangama Sutra about the location of the mind or ways in which logic was employed to to, to break down some of the notions we have. But if the mind lives in the body, which part? Does it live in the whole body? Well, if that's so, then when you get a haircut, you have less mind. If you lose weight, you would have less mind. Or if you gained weight, you'd have more mind. That sounds great if you like mind. It's kind of ridiculous. Body is a house for mind, but that's part of the computer model, the ghost in the machine. Yeah, Not a Buddhist idea. To articulate something of the Buddhist idea, the body is an expression of the mind. It is is like the expression of heart-mind, both past and present, come into physicality. It's not all esoteric. For example, if you frown a lot, as your grandma said, you might end up with a frowny face. Did you ever hear anything like that? If you keep making that face, it'll stay like that. Well, you can meet some people who've been frowning since they were 11 and now they're 82 and they have a frowny face. It's true. Your mind shapes your body. So we're conditioned by machines. I'll keep belaboring the point. The intention underneath the point is that it might inspire us to be free from any of this that we think, I don't want to be like that. Some people think it's really cool to like be a machine, to be machine-like. And I, that's not my business. Okay. I don't want to be like that. The uh, age of quantification. In our Dharma practice, how much am I getting from this comes in? know. Yeah. Is it net positive? Right. I return to this point. I think this is important because to transfer from a transactional to a devotional relationship means we outgrow how much are I getting from this? The paradox is we get, we're, we're blessed by the Dharma when we do it without that notion operating, it's a, it's a pickle, yeah. But everything is about measuring results, right? You see polls, we get data, we gain weight, we lose weight. We have 42 friends, 32 likes. We have so much money in the bank. We relate to quantity all the time. And that can really affect our Dharma practice. A machine thinks uh, in a binary way. Things are either or. Yeah, they're ones or zeros, polarities. If you think about um, the mind and how quickly it categorizes according to I like or I don't like it or it's good or it's bad, I find it really striking. How was your day? It was good. How was work? It was bad. Yeah, I had a bad day. Because language, without, without thinking poetically, has no other place to, nothing else it can do. What would you say that's not in a polarity, it's not in a machine binary about how was your day? You, you could kind of speak in haiku, I think. Or you could speak in fact. I felt this, I felt that. There was a moment when the coffee was so delicious and I was happy. Then there were some moments I was really bored. Maybe that's why we want friends who can actually listen. We can have communication that is not that machine-like binary. If it was good, it was bad. There's enough time to actually like express the nuance of experience. So the last point about a machine is the tyranny of efficiency. Why do we value efficiency? Why is it important to get a bunch of stuff done? Where did that come from? Why is faster better? If, if it really... if. Is it, can it be anything other than capitalism to be effective? I have a client who's a young doctor and it's heartbreaking to him how limited the time is that he's allotted to spend with a patient. It's become increasingly corporatized medicine. So that is a sign of Kali Yuga, that the place of where tenderness and human connection should be maximum is a place where quantification is prioritized. And therefore, what he experiences is that people come in and say, Doc, I don't want to hear anything about my life. Here's the pill I want. I already researched it. Can you write me a prescription? Can you give me something I can put in my machine to make it better? Forget about my relationships to life that are causing this illness. So speed, efficiency. Yeah. The fast food era. Everything is a reflection of everything else. Um, One thing that's frustrating for me is if I'm not like amped up on caffeine, in conversations, I will often take time to think about a response. But some people think I'm ignoring them or that I'm like, I've disconnected, but actually I just don't always have a snap response. I'm just like letting what they said land. I'm just feeling what I might respond with. If you're a slow thinker, or a, um, you float in the space of your own being, you don't have an internal rush, people nowadays might find that rather odd. Because the, the processing speed, the cult of efficiency, has us, so our tempo is so high. I read um, a long time ago Gary Snyder talking about what he saw in Zen in Japan. And it was related to efficiency. He was living at a Rinzai monastery. This was, I think, the 50s or the 60s. It was before the personal computer. It was still the age of the machine. And there was some daily task at the monastery he noticed it was done very inefficiently. And he couldn't understand, he like realized, oh, if they would just pour the buckets here and do it like this, then it would go much smoother and they'd get a lot more done. And he brought it to the monks and the abbot and they looked at him like he was just the strangest person. Like, why would we want to get it done faster? It was a value that wasn't a part of that culture, or at least not a part of the monastic culture. We'll just get it done. We'll just attend to what's in front of us. Machines almost never get tired. I learned that recently that my phone can overheat, but all I have to do is put it under a blanket for a few minutes and it will continue functioning. But for example, this laptop has never broken for a long time. It just keeps going. It's so inhuman. It never needs real rest. It just needs to be plugged into the wall. We are not like that. So I hope there was some Dharma in there tonight. I don't know if there was. But maybe there's a remedial aspect of Dharma that's just reclaiming some basic humanity that, that has been eroded by modern times.